Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to, to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, welcome. Happy New Year. And the same to you. Blessed 2023 and looking for good things to come throughout this year. So far, so good. Classroom <laughs> and loving liberty. I should knock on wood when I say so far, so good. I, You know, I'm watching the, the transition of power in Washington, D.C., and I, I can't decide, is it a good thing or a bad thing that uh, I believe this is for the first time in 100 years, the House of Representatives is having difficulty electing a speaker. It's over 100 years. That, I'm going to ask you, Brian, are you looking for a job? <laughs> Not that one. <laughs> well, the position of Speaker of the House is up for grabs. <laughs> and you have as much chance as anybody else. Uh, so I have a question for you because I've heard some yes. someone else was asking me this. Does the person who fills that job have to be an elected representative? The answer appears to be no. Wow. Fact, if you read to Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution, the last clause of that section says, the House of Representatives shall choose their speaker and other officers and shall have the sole power of impeachment. It says they shall choose their speaker. doesn't say anything about the speaker having to be a congressman or voting member of the House. And since it doesn't say that, my conclusion would be that they do not. In fact, there has even been a bill in Congress to require that the Speaker of the House be a member of Congress. And the fact that they feel it necessary to propose that bill, which has not passed, tells me that the Constitution itself does not impose that requirement. In fact, it has even been suggested that, you know, the problem we've had in the past there is Talk about impeaching the president. That's not necessarily that good an idea. You impeach President Biden, and if the Senate, by a two-thirds vote, chooses to remove him, then we have Kamala Harris as president, and I think I'd rather have an incompetent liberal than a dedicated Marxist. For sure. But if we were to impeach both of them, remove both of them, then... We would have Nancy Pelosi, who is no better than than the former two. However, the suggestion has been made that the House could elect Donald Trump as the Speaker of the House, and then impeach and remove Biden and Harris, and Trump would be president. Now, that would be perfectly legal. They could do that. I don't think they'd ever get it done, but legally, they could do that. Wow. And anyway, so there are a number of names that are up for grabs right now. Kevin McCarthy, of course, has been the main Republican candidate for this position and seems to have the support of about 90% of Republicans in Congress. But there are some that are not in favor of him, and he has to have a majority of the whole House, including the Democrats. And so... It's interesting that if you have, let's say, moderate Democrats who don't care for Kevin McCarthy, if they want to support Jeffries, the Democrat 
who is running for Speaker of the House. If, let's say, about five of them would choose to support Jeffries, we would still have a Democrat Speaker of the House. I don't think that's likely to happen. Wow. But So you might wonder, well, what's going on then? Why do you have the opposition building up here against Kevin McCarthy? Well, the answer is that we have within Congress what we call the Freedom Caucus, which is composed of staunchly conservative Republicans who not only hold a strong conservative ideology, but who don't want to compromise on that ideology, or at least very little compromise. And anyway, they feel that McCarthy is likely to make too many compromises. And so they are not, at this point, willing to support him. Now, the likelihood, in my opinion, is that what they're really trying to do is to hold out for concessions for McCarthy. And he's already made some. He said, for example, that any time five congressmen ask for it, they can have a vote on whether to remove the Speaker of the House. And I believe he's made a number of other concessions to the Freedom Caucus as well. Why doesn't he just make all the concessions that they ask for? Well, first of all, we're not sure what all of the concessions they're asking for are. And some have said that whenever he makes concessions, that the Freedom Caucus comes up with new demands that they make of him. So maybe there's a problem there. He's not sure how far that's going to go. But on the other hand, as the Speaker of the House, just like, although in a different way, the House Majority Leader, and the same with the Senate Majority Leader and others, he has to unite the Republican element in Congress. And if he makes too many concessions to the right, to the Freedom Caucus people, then he may lose the support of a few of the more moderates, and he can only lose about four or five of those before the Democrats are in control again. And so he has something of a tightrope that he has to walk. It's kind of like the situation of Mitch McConnell in the Senate. Now, a lot of conservatives believe that Mitch McConnell has not been conservative enough. A lot of conservatives believe that McConnell has been way, way too willing to cooperate with liberal Democrats and has not pushed hard enough for a conservative agenda. But... You have to consider that in order to win a majority vote, when he's not just a bare majority, doesn't have that anymore, of course, but when he had just a bare majority, in order to win a majority vote, he had to keep some of the hardline conservatives like Mike Lee of Utah and, and Ted Cruz of Texas, he had to keep them in with the Republican vote. But at the same time, he had to keep some of the more moderates in line, like Portman of Ohio, who's no longer there, Collins, and uh, I believe Maine, and Murkowski of Alaska. He had to keep them. If he went too far to the right, he loses them. If he goes too far to the moderate side, he loses the hardline conservatives. I have to say, I, I honestly think that Mitch McConnell did a pretty good job of walking that tightrope. And I honestly do not believe that Donald Trump could have gotten his three conservative Supreme Court nominees or his many other judicial nominees through Congress had it not been for Mitch McConnell.
when I say getting through Congress, I mean getting through the Senate. That's all you need for judicial confirmations. But the Speaker of the House and the House Majority Leader are going to have to be able to do the same thing with a razor-thin majority. They've got to hold that majority together. And I really think that before this is over with, that Kevin McCarthy is going to be chosen and probably will make a few more concessions before he does so, but it may, and it may be that those of the Freedom Caucus, the Club for Growth, others that are being labeled by the media as the far right, they may be performing a real service right now by making sure that McCarthy commits himself to being the kind of conservative speaker that they want. This is a very, very important office because not only does he preside over the House, but in the event that both the president and the vice president should be unable to continue in office, the Speaker of the House becomes the president. So this is a very, very important position. Not only that, but the House is important for another reason. And that's that according to Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution, we have there what we call the Origination Clause, which provides that all bills for raising revenue must originate in the House. This goes way back to the 1300s in England, and in principle, it even goes back to the Magna Carta of 1215, the idea that you can't be deprived of your property, you can't be immersed or taxed without the vote of the representatives of the people. Well, the House is the body representing the people. The Senate originally was chosen by the state legislatures, not by popular election. That's changed. But the House was the body representing the people. And so the House was the one to originate all tax measures. Anyway, so for several reasons, the House is a very important body of government. And the Speaker of the House is a very important figure. I will say this in regard to Nancy Pelosi. A lot of people are likely to heap abuse on her that she is leaving office. And yes, I thank God that she is leaving office. But ask me what I think of her. I have to say, I think she's been a worthy opponent. And military people can sometimes recognize the valor in an opponent. And yes, she has fought valiantly for her wrong left-wing beliefs. She has been able to hold her razor-thin majority together very effectively in Congress, has done that for the last four years, and I have to give her credit for being a worthy opponent and fighting a battle well fought. But anyway, I'm very glad she's going to be gone. Well, it'll be interesting to see. Um, I, everything you've outlined sounds very plausible to me. Um, I appreciate your answer to to uh, the question as to whether or not you have to be a member of the House of Representatives, because that's the rumor I'd been hearing as well. You know, Donald Trump, they could elect him as speaker. And it's like, as as much as it would please me to see some of the swamp creatures running for cover, I think that would really cause a lot of uh, unrest. Well, it would. And, you know, you got to consider this, too, that government, when we say that we is, that we are, we have a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And understand the emphasis there on the word people. In fact, there was a war between the states veteran 
who wrote to a speaker one time, this speaker had been quoting Lincoln. This is many decades after the war. And anyway, this speaker had quoted the Gettysburg Address, government of the people, by the people, for the people. And this veteran wrote, you put the emphasis wrong. I was there. I heard Lincoln give that address. And he said, government of the people, by the people, for the people. Now, when we consider that, you have to remember that there is only so far that the that any branch of government, and that includes the judiciary, can push the people before the people are going to dig in and refuse to go along. Now, we've seen on the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs versus Jackson, the decision overruling Roe versus Wade, that there's been more pushback on that decision than I would have anticipated. That the decision, Roe versus Wade, was such a well, poorly worded decision, poorly reasoned decision, had no basis in the Constitution at all, and all the Supreme Court did in the Dobbs versus Jackson decision, they didn't provide that abortion is now illegal in the country. Rather, they simply said that the matter now belongs to the states. It is not addressed in the Constitution. Therefore, it is up to the states to decide whether abortion should be legal or illegal or partially legal and partially illegal. Seems like a very reasonable position, but we have seen what a pushback there has been against that partly by misrepresenting what the court said. If the court had gone so far as to say that the 14th Amendment, when it guarantees that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, that this guarantee of life means that unborn children's lives have to be protected and abortion must therefore be illegal everywhere, I think there's good grounds for making such a ruling, but if the court had done so, they would have faced such a pushback in Congress, in the media, in academia, and in whatever segment of the American people those elements can influence, that the Supreme Court would have lost a lot of legitimacy. I think they went probably as far as they could. And likewise, I think if the Republicans in Congress were to take that step, if they were to choose Donald Trump as the Speaker of the House, and then attempt an impeachment and removal, I think the, there'd be such a popular reaction against that that it wouldn't work. And you try to go too far like that, it usually backfires, and you regret it. So, yeah, I, legally, they could do that. Practically and politically speaking, I don't think it'd work. Okay. Well... It, it'll be interesting to keep an eye on it, and and I'm glad that we have your uh, depths of uh, wisdom to draw from as far as uh, making sense of it all. For several weeks now, you and I have been trying to uh, to have a conversation about uh, the influence of Hebrew law on our own system of laws. Is today the day? Do, do we get to have that conversation? I think we do today. We've covered the main thing that is going on today, and you know, we're looking at the Constitution. This is Constitution Classroom, and the purpose of this program is to educate people about this document that embodies the principles that have made this nation what it is. And that has really meant a couple of things. First of all, it has meant we look to the Constitution itself 
paragraph by paragraph, section by section, clause by clause, to see what it says and what the courts have done with it. Secondly, it means we look to what the courts are doing and look to cases and issues going on right now and how the Constitution bears on those. But third, we look go back to some of the basic principles that the Constitution is based on. And so we've been looking at some principles of Hebrew law and started this a few times. Each time we've gotten off to some of the other things, which are not sidetracked. They're essential parts of what we're talking about. But right now we've got some time. So let's review a few of those principles and hopefully get to a few others as well. I've summarized a lot of these in volume one of my historical and theological foundations of law published by Nordskog Publishing. But the first principle is that God exists and he is one God, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, that he is righteous, that he is just, that he is truthful, that he is immutable, unchangeable, and that he is loving. Putting all of these qualities together, we describe this as the unity of God. And not only the unity of God, meaning that God is one, but in addition to that, that his character is one. And pagan and polyistic, polytheistic systems of law really mean that there are many truths, and therefore there are many laws. E.C. Wines, a Bible teacher back in the early days of our republic, who wrote a magnificent work titled Commentaries on the Laws of the Ancient Hebrews, wrote, All the ancient lawgivers called in the aid of religion to strengthen their respective politics. Thus did many in Egypt, Minos in Crete, Cadmus in Thebes, Lysurgus in Sparta, Seleucus in Locris, and Numa in Rome. But the procedure of Moses differed fundamentally from that of these heathen legislators. They employed religion in establishing their political institutions, while Moses made use of a civil institution and a civil constitution as a means of perpetuating religion. Thus, Moses made the worship of the one only God, the fundamental law of his civil institutions. The law was to remain forever unalterable, to all the changes which lapse of time might introduce into his constitution. Principles of law remain constant, even though their application might vary from one age to another. But if you believe in the multiplicity of gods, if you're a polytheist, then you believe that there are many truths and many law systems. If you believe in many gods, then... Zeus of the Greeks has one law system. Jupiter of the Romans has another. Odin of the Norse or Wotan of the Germans has another. Ra of the Egyptians will have another. Marduk of the Babylonians, Baal of the Chaldeans and many others. But each of them has its own truth and each of them has its own law code. But if there is one God, there is one truth and one basic set of principles of law. So the unity of God, there being one God, that is the central principle 
of Hebrew law. Second principle would be that God is the source of all true law. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. That's what Isaiah says in 33:22, And that even tells us that well, all of these are the Lord, the judge, the lawgiver, the king, tells us also that of the three functions of government, the legislative function, the executive function, the judicial function, all of those are found in God. And in fact, all of those are summarized in that one verse of Isaiah. So all true law comes from God. Blackstone emphasized that very clearly when he said that any law that man makes that is inconsistent with the higher law of God is no valid law at all. To be valid, law must conform with this higher will of God. Blackstone simply says that upon these two foundations, the revealed law and the law of nature, depend all human laws. That is to say, no law should be permitted to contradict these. So God is, exists. He is one God. He is the source of all true law. And the third principle, then, is that law reflects the will and character of God. In Psalm 19.7, we read, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. How can law be perfect? It can be perfect only if it reflects that higher law of God. So, law is not just some hoops that somebody has established that people have to jump through. It's not just edicts that are issued by government. True law reflects the will and character of God himself. Fourth principle is that God's justice requires punishment for sin. That's one of the reasons we need government. As Ezekiel says in chapter 18, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And as Paul tells us in Romans, the wages of sin is death. God, because of his character, because he is perfect righteousness, and because he is perfect justice, God cannot simply forgive sin. He can't just simply write it off and say, we'll pretend it didn't happen. Sin involves a penalty. And for God's perfect justice, that penalty has to be paid. Of course, we know that Christ paid that penalty for us on the cross. So from the standpoint of God's justice, that penalty has been paid. But from the standpoint of man's justice, there is still a penalty to be paid. And a crime is a crime not only against God, but also against the state. To Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. 
We're talking about the influence of Hebrew law on our own laws. You were just, as we came to the break, talking about how a crime is not just against man, but also against God. I'm probably paraphrasing that wrong, but it was a it was a nice jumping off point. Let's let's jump right back on. All right, let's review those principles once again. That God is one God, and therefore there is one law. God is the source of all true law, and law reflects the will and character of God. And finally, God's justice requires punishment for sin. Now let's go on to a fifth point, and that is that man is created in God's image. Genesis 9, 6, we read, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Now why? Because human life is cheap? No, let's read the rest of the verse. For in the image of God made he man. We provide the extreme punishment for the taking of human life because human life is precious. It is precious because we are created in God's image. As Psalm 8 tells us, Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Now, to say that man is created in the image of God certainly has some important implications. First of all, it means that there is human dignity. And if there is human dignity, that's a basis for human rights. Where do we get human rights? Well, unless they come from a higher source than man, they're not rights at all. They're simply the privileges that the state grants and that the state can take away. But if God has created man with human dignity, then there are certain rights that we attach to being created in God's image. The right, for example, not to be punished without proof that one committed a crime. And you might say another source of human rights are the negative commands of the scriptures, negative commands of the Decalogue, when we see in the Decalogue, Thou shalt not murder, that conveys by implication a right to life. Thou shalt not steal, that conveys a right to property. And so we see certain human rights that are implied in the negative commands of Scripture. Anyway, putting all these together, then, that man is sinful, and, but he is created in God's image, and therefore, we want to make sure that we don't punish anybody for a crime unless we have proof that the person, in fact, did commit that crime. Now, let's move on to a sixth principle. Ever since the fall, ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit there in the garden and were cursed and expelled from the garden, ever since then, man has, has been and continues to be sinful. In Psalm 51, we read, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That tells us that sin, the sinful nature of man, goes not just back to birth, but all the way back to conception. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, the Jews themselves didn't necessarily hold to original sin in the sense that 
most Protestants have held to original sin, but they certainly did believe that we are capable of sin. And for that reason, sin needs to be atoned for, and their system of atonement was by the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Protestants and Catholics generally believe that those sacrifices of the Old Testament are valid because they look forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That lamb that was sacrificed on the altar in the Old Testament is a picture of the Lamb of God, Christ, dying for our sins. But man has been and continues to be sinful. Well, because of man's sin, the seventh principle is that God has established human government. And he's established human government to punish crime and to preserve order. The function of government, as we're told in Romans 13, 1 through 7, as we're told in 1 Peter and other passages, the function of government is not to engage in social engineering, not to re-educate us in regard to gender identification, not to engage in income redistribution. The function of government is to protect ordered liberty against foreign invasion and domestic crime. Israel enjoyed the protection under the judges and under the limited monarchy of Saul and David, but then government veered toward absolutism, and Solomon and the kingdom were divided thereafter. But point of the matter is, why did God institute government? He instituted government for the punishment of crime. And why does government punish crime? Well, I'll give you several reasons for the punishment of crime. One is to satisfy God's judgment. God says in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. But in Romans 13, he says that he has established the civil ruler as an avenger to execute wrath to him that doeth evil. Excuse me for the King James language there, but that's kind of what I'm used to. By the way, I've decided, you know, we have all this business today about people should be able to choose their own gender pronouns. Kids are asked, what gender pronouns do you wish to be called by? I thought about that. As a devotee of the King James Bible, here are my personal pronouns, and I ask everybody to address me by these from now on. Thee, thou, thy, and thine. I don't know if you could remember that or not, but anyway, that's rabbit trailing off the subject, but I think for a purpose. But anyway, so we have this sinful nature of man and the need for human government. God is the avenger of, of, against all sin and evil, but he has delegated a portion of his authority to civil government to be the avenger, to execute wrath, according to, to him that doeth evil. It's all with God, but he has delegated a portion of that authority. So that's the main purpose of civil government. Now, another purpose of civil government, I guess you could probably say, is also to provide for some kind of social order. Even if there were no such thing as a sinful nature, we would still have to have some laws to decide who has the right of way when Poor cars come 
to the intersection together at the same time to put up stop signs and yield right away signs and things like that. So there is some need of government to provide for social order, regardless of the sin nature, but punishing sin is the main purpose. And we punish sin for, first of all, vengeance, as we've said. Secondly, for deterrent, we see the purpose of punishment repeatedly stated in the Old Testament, that all Israel may hear and fear. In other words, when we see somebody being punished for a crime, or when we read in the statute that if you commit this crime, if you're convicted, you're going to put spend 10 years in jail, that deters people from committing crime. So the purpose of punishment then, one, vengeance, two, deterrent, three, restraint. And when we say restraint, when somebody has been executed or when somebody's behind bars, the people are protected from that person. And so long as he's behind bars, he's not going to be committing crimes except against other inmates. And so one reason for punishment is for restraint. A fourth reason is for rehabilitation. The idea being that when a person is punished for a crime, he will see the error of his word, ways and either decide that crime is wrong and I'm going to follow right from now on or decide, well, crime doesn't pay, so I guess I better not do it. It's in my self-interest to obey the law. Anyway, so those are four reasons for punishing crime. Number one, deterrent. Number two, vengeance. Number three, restraint. Number four, rehabilitation. And a fifth might be to prevent private vengeance. You know, that's one of the problems with the old Viking law. I've loved, as a Viking myself, I've loved the study of Viking law, but one of the problems under Viking law was that if a person committed a crime, the all thing, or the local thing, that is the local Freeman's council, could try him and convict him of that crime, but they wouldn't have the authority to punish him for it. Rather, what they would do is they would declare that he is an outlaw. An outlaw simply meant outside the protection of the law, which meant that anybody could legally assault that person or rob that person or kill that person. He was outside the protection of the law. Now, the problem with this is that the person who has been convicted of a crime, chances are, has friends and relatives that are on his side and who don't take kindly to the crime victim and the crime victim's relatives exercising their vengeance. And so this, in the Viking sagas, led to blood feuds that lasted for generations. We've seen things similar here in the United States, the Hatfield and McCoy feud and the Appalachians and so on. And anyway, so part of the reason that people do this is built within man, there is a desire for vengeance. And that is partly wrong, but also partly right. The desire for vengeance is partly based on the recognition that when a person commits a crime, the scales of justice are imbalanced. And 
That imbalance continues until they are balanced by the person being punished for his crime. And if government isn't going to impose punishment for crime, then you're going to see relatives of the victim, or you're going to see vigilante committees and so on being formed to do that punishment by themselves, many times without giving the due process of law that is needed to make sure that the right person has been convicted. And so to prevent that kind of thing from taking place, that's one of the reasons why we establish civil government and we authorize civil government not only to find people guilty of a criminal offense, but also to punish them for that offense as well. And so we've gone through these principles. Now let's take another. And before government may punish crime, great precautions must be taken to ensure that no one is wrongly convicted. Now, we recognize that in our society. Blackstone once stated that it is better that, I believe he said, that 10 guilty murderers go free than that one innocent person be wrongly convicted. To which the question is asked, okay, would you go so far as to say 100 guilty murderers should go free? Or 1,000? And what if you add to the equation that and out of those thousand guilty murderers go free, about two-thirds, or 600, are going to commit more crimes on innocent people. Where do we draw the line there? But point is, we consider it a horrible, a horrible thing if a person is wrongly convicted and punished of a crime. In fact, I think more people, we would say that if a person is wrongly executed for a crime that he didn't commit, that is even worse than a person being murdered. Because it is a miscarriage of justice, as well as a tragedy for the person involved. Anyway, so among the things the Bible does to ensure that a person is not wrongfully convicted, they provide, for example, that No one can be convicted except upon the testimony of two or three witnesses. The idea being that one person can lie or be wrong. It's less likely that two or three people are going to lie or be wrong. Still possible, but it reduces the likelihood of a miscarriage of justice. It doesn't eliminate it, but it greatly reduces it. We provide further that the defendant has a right not to be forced to testify against himself. We provide further that people who testify in a criminal proceeding must testify under oath. They must take an oath before God that they are telling the truth. And in fact, in the Bible, if you testify under oath falsely, the punishment is very severe. The punishment is the punishment that would go to the defendant if the defendant had been found guilty of the crime. In other words, if you are found to have perjured yourself to testify falsely in a murder case, the punishment for you is capital punishment. Today, we tend to think of perjury as a minor offense, but that's not the way the Bible regards it, and it's not the way other 
ancient societies regarded. Another provision is that a verdict of the court had to be unanimous, convicting a person of a crime. And not only did it have to be unanimous, but if it was a death penalty case, the jury had to deliberate again the next day in order to decide whether or not they had made a mistake. And in fact, this isn't in the Bible, but according to ancient accounts, what would happen during the next day is town criers, and even through the night, town criers would go up and down the street saying, Joshua has been convicted of murder and has been sentenced to death. If anyone has evidence to clear him, let him come forward now. All of these are provisions that are designed to ensure that nobody is wrongfully convicted of a crime. Now, did it work perfectly? Probably not. But in a society like this that respects the oath, that respects the law, we would like to believe this had the effect of reducing wrongful convictions to a minimum. Brian, how much time do we have? We've got about five minutes. Okay, let's take at least one more principle then. And that's that once a defendant's guilt is proven, then punishment is appropriate. But when we say punishment is appropriate, we mean punishment that must fit the crime. And repeatedly in the scriptures, we see this phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And we think of that as being a very stern, severe, even cruel form of punishment. But what it means is, let the punishment fit the crime. What it means is that we are not going to punish people with extreme severity for minor offenses, as was often the case under draconian law in ancient Athens or the laws of the Assyrians, the laws, for example, of the Incas and South America and many other ancient societies, very severe punishments, death by torture for minor offenses. That was not the case in Israel. Yes, blasphemy was a capital offense, but blasphemy was considered to be a very severe offense because it was an offense committed against Almighty God. And if we think that is being too severe, it's because we fail to recognize the importance of the fear of God. But anyway, we've got more principles to consider, but let's look at those once again. Let's review what we've covered here. First, the principles of Hebrew law are that God exists, and he is one God, and therefore one law, and one truth. Second, that God is the source of all true law, no law that is consistent with God's higher law is even law in any valid sense of the word. Three, that law reflects the will and the character of God. Four, that God's justice requires punishment for sin. Five, that man is created in God's image, therefore possesses human dignity and human rights. Six, that ever since the fall, Man has been and continues to be sinful and commits sins, many of which are crimes. And seven, God has established human government, therefore, in order to punish crime and to preserve order. And an eighth principle, that before government may punish crime, great precautions must be taken 
to ensure that no one is wrongly convicted. The Hebrew legal system recognized that, as does the Anglo-American legal system as well. And a fifth or a ninth principle is that once a defendant's guilt is proven, then punishment is appropriate. But the punishment must be punishment that fits the crime. We'll be talking much more about these kinds of punishment as we look to the premises of Hebrew law in future sessions. It's interesting to me how um, I know that one of the uh, common objections I hear on the part of secularists is, well, if you get religious fervor behind your law, people are going to be burning witches. You know, they're basically it's going to be a free for all. And any kind of moral panic is going to result in, you know, a tremendous amount of injustice. Usually they point to the Salem witch trials as, you know, the the pinnacle of that's what that would look like. Maybe the Inquisition, you know, could, could be a part of that as well. But let's look at the Salem witch trials for just a minute. Okay. First of all, how many witches were burned in the Salem witch trials? None. There were 24 executions by hanging. One was by pressing, which was really to try to make the person talk. It wasn't really an execution. There were no burnings whatsoever. 24. And that is in the approximately 150 years of American colonial history. In contrast, thousands upon thousands being executed for witchcraft by burning in many cases in Europe. Now, if you assume as a basic premise that there is no such thing as a witch, then all of this becomes very simple. It's mass hysteria, false accusations. On the other hand, if you believe that Satan is real and that Satan can possess people and there are people who give their lives to Satan, that makes the issue more complex. It doesn't necessarily mean that those who were executed in Salem were witches. Or if they were, it doesn't necessarily mean that executing was the right thing to do. But in the mind of the secular humanist, this is very simple, overly simple. But if you believe that Satan is real, if you believe in a spiritual reality, it becomes a much more complex question. No, I could see that. And, and, you know, the thing that strikes me about uh, particularly Hebrew law, though, is it sets God Almighty up as the highest source of morality. In other words, the state is not the highest source of morality, uh, which we've seen. You know, I mean, people who caught slaves and returned them to their owners under the Fugitive mm-hmm. Slave Act, they were following the law. You know, the people who were helping mm-hmm. those slaves escape, they were criminals. But I, I still have a pretty clear idea of who was right and who was wrong, regardless Absolutely. of what was legal or what wasn't. Absolutely. And it's interesting. You look to the Salem witch trials. It was the legal community, the judges and so on, that were pushing these trials. It was the Puritan clergy that were saying, hey, wait a minute. We've got to be careful. Not that they were totally opposed, but they're saying, wait a minute. We've got to be careful on this. Well, it's it's wonderful to, to get an explanation of how this all has come together and how our system has evolved. I I sometimes feel, and maybe you have some thoughts on this, we're evolving in a direction that, of course, is taking us further and further from God, and therefore, I think, further and further away from actual, legit morality. But uh, maybe maybe that pendulum is due to swing back here soon. I certainly hope so. When we say we're moving further and further away from God, many would tell you that they're, we're moving toward freedom. But it is a totally remote from the kind of freedom that our founding fathers thought they established. The freedoms that they thought they established, freedom from excessive taxation, for example, 
or the freedom to establish a business, the freedom to work at your chosen occupation, the right not to have to wear a mask, the right not to be vaccinated, things like this. Those aren't the freedoms that the average person values today. Today, freedom is thought of in the sense of being able to utter obscenity, to view obscenity, to take drugs, to engage in perversion, and so on. Everything that our founding fathers would have thought led to slavery and led to bondage, that's what people are talking about in the name of freedom today. And it simply does not work. Thank you.